Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. You're going to hear from a man who's protesting the rise in fatal crashes involving pedestrians in Hamilton. We'll bring you the new interim director of the Brat Music Festival. Many Canadian families are tweaking their grocery shopping habits. Are you? We may be a little closer to a national autism plan. An interesting new study about black students and post-secondary education to tell you about. And nominations are open for Hamilton's Woman in Spirit Award. The GMH podcast starts now this is the good morning hamilton podcast on 900 chml it's remarkable how every single individual driver that is part of the problem somehow only becomes concerned with that type of behavior when it's in their neighborhood. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That's the voice of Councillor Sam Marula after a motion was approved by councillors last week calling for more collaboration between police and the city to address pedestrian safety in Hamilton. As we know, you've been hearing about the stories, you've been uh, reflecting on the lives lost when it comes to fatal collisions involving pedestrians in this city. The anger, the frustration, the disbelief all boiling over and has led to a protest that is being held later on this morning in the City Hall forecourt. One of those involved is a cycling, walking, and transit advocate, community member, and Award Two resident, Chris Ritzma, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. Yourself? Uh, I'm okay. You tweeted that last week, quote, demand change on our streets in Hamilton. Why do you feel the need to be a part of this rally and protest today? I am just angered about the death and destruction on our streets. And I think there's a fundamental problem, and I think we should demand change to improve that. So what can we expect to hear and see at 9.30 this morning? I think uh, we're going to see a lot of people come out who have been feeling this way for a while, and they're looking for an outlet to channel that anger, and to hear some people speak about some of the concerns they've had, some of the personal uh, experiences they've had, and some of the successes we've had. So what emotions have you been feeling over the last little while? I mean, this isn't a new problem, but we have had a rash of fatal collisions involving pedestrians. What's been going through your mind? I have been thinking about, you know, myself, my family, um, my neighbors, the people I speak to on a regular basis. I mean, it's it's become some sort of normal that this happens every day. And it's not just pedestrians, it's, it's anybody on our streets. And it's just, it's getting to the point of ridiculousness and starting to really bother me. I don't want to live the rest of my life dealing with this. Yeah, I don't blame you. Chris Ritzma is our guest. He's a cycling, walking, and transit advocate in the city of Hamilton, a member of our community in Ward 2, and is uh, one of the organizers uh, of this protest at 9.30 this morning in the City Hall forecourt. Councillors are going to bring forward a notice of motion today. They're going to ask staff to look into safety improvements along Main and King. What are some of the options that you think should be considered? I'd like to see, uh, you know, two-way um, as a cycling person, uh, going an entire other block is can be dangerous. Uh, you know, you have to make massive detours. I'd like to see some lane reductions happen immediately, and I'd love to see some uh, no right on red, which has been shown to be incredibly dangerous to pedestrians crossing. All great suggestions. How soon can we see these things, though? You know, it, it depends on what the city decides uh, and how temporary they want them to be. I think uh, you look at Toronto and what happened during COVID, and I'd say... You know, if the funds are available, they should be able to do a lot of these things almost immediately. A few of them are just signs. A lot of them are just bollards that can be screwed into the ground. I mean, it, it can happen quite quickly if, if we have the will. 
We're talking about pedestrian safety here in Hamilton on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our guest is Chris Ritzma, cycling, walking and transit advocate, one of the organizers of today's protest in the uh, City Hall forecourt, which begins at 930 this morning. Police enforcement has also come into this fray as well. What what part do they play in all this? I think the police, you know, have have, uh, you know, have have a role in this. Um, I think police in most of the GTHA have said that they don't plan to enforce uh, driving as much as they have in the past. It's really unfortunate because I think that it can be a part of of regular, you know, following the rules. Uh, But I think road design helps a lot, right? I mean, you you get the rat running, you get the swerving back and forth. I think everybody's seen it on the five lanes of Maine. And uh, I I think design is key and enforcement is is second, but also necessary. I, I would make the suggestion that converting Maine and or King to two-way is, I mean, that's going to take a lot of planning. I'm sure there's some kind of blueprint somewhere in the back shelves of City Hall. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's been buried or not, like uh, maybe another report has. But uh, listen, that where there's a will, there's a way. And I think that's probably the biggest change that can happen, because that would really slow down the speed on those two routes. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it, from studies that they've done, it, it shouldn't sh- slow drivers down too much. I might add an extra minute or two to the length of Maine, but a lot of people aren't going the full length, and a lot of people walk and, and cycle around there, and it's their neighborhood. So if that's what it takes to save lives, and I think that it should absolutely happen. Do you feel unsafe when you're walking on a sidewalk or riding your bike? On many streets in Hamilton, I do. It's it's loud. It's it's uh, it, it you know people aren't looking. Um, the they're go looking for cars coming that direction. It's one of the reasons one-ways can be really dangerous. On Cannon, I see it happen all the time. Drivers look east for cars coming and not west for cyclists and pedestrians. And the same thing happens on Maine and many of the other one-ways. And have you noticed this issue becoming progressively worse, or was there a flip of the switch during or, or, or as we're nearing the end of this pandemic? I think the end of the pandemic has, has definitely uh, brought some of this about. I mean, I drive sometimes, and during the pandemic, it felt like people were driving a lot more dangerously, and I think that now that the roads have become more full, uh, it you know it's all kind of coming to a head, um, and it just shows that uh, it's important to you know design streets for for all drivers and not just for the best ones. Well, Chris, thanks for uh, grabbing the baton and heightening the awareness around this issue. Good luck with the protest, and uh, hopefully, we'll see some improvements uh, down the road, so to speak. Thank you. Chris Ritzma, cycling, walking, transit advocate, and a community member in Ward 2 in our lovely city of Hamilton. It would be lovelier if we could make our streets that much safer. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Though he had no plans to retire, one name was always at the tip of Boris's tongue. He said emphatically, this musician, pedagogue, conductor, and community builder was his very first choice to take over the reins from him. That is the voice of Boris Brott's widow, Ardith Brotts. You're back here with Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Pleased to have you on board once again and each and every morning as you wake up with us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The Brott Music Festival announcing who will be taking over for the renowned conductor Boris Brotts, who left us way too early after a tragic accident in Hamilton. His name is Alain Trudel. He's the interim conductor and artistic director with the Brott Music Festival and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alan, good morning. Good morning. When you were asked to take over from the great Boris Brott, what was that moment like? Well, it's a little surreal because, uh, you know, I, Boris had so much vitality in him. I, 
I thought, you know, for sure, I mean, the general consensus would be, would be like, I don't know, 95, 100, something like that, and we'll, we would lose him on the podium uh, after a concert or something like that. I mean, it's a, he was, uh, he had the vitality of somebody who was like in his, uh, his 30s or 40s. <laughs> it was ridiculous. So to, to have this was a big shock. It's still a big shock to all of us, like a huge shock. And, uh, uh, then, then of course, when they, when they mentioned it, uh, I, I I could not, of course, I could not say no because the, uh, the mission that Boris has started some 35 years ago is so important. It's more than relevant. It's really Im- important, and it's one of the very few uh, orchestras in the world that does that, the, the training orchestra. So uh, it's, uh, of course, I said yes. What does that mission mean to you? Is it just bringing this type of music to the people, or is it? Is it um, elevating those who are already involved to greater heights? Well, I, well you, it's, it's a very good question. It's a very good intro you gave to it because basically it's that it's in two, it's in two parts. And I would say that, uh, yeah, of course, it's very important to, uh, to be out there and playing music for, for everybody and all kinds of music. So that's one thing that's very important is that this festival plays, yes, classical music, uh, you know, we're going to open with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and then we will play, you know, Dvorak, New World Symphony. We'll play all, all the kind of the standards. And then oh, there's going to be the Sound of Music, because uh, they play uh, a musical every year. And there's some rock concerts this year. It's ABBA, sometimes it's Queen, and, uh, and they play like a Sinatra show. And then, oh, we go back, we play opera, you know. So this year it's a Cinderella. And then we go back and play some more symphonic music. That actually is something that uh, that's very important to, to me as well. So uh, we, we have a good fit in the way we talk. Boris and I talked often about what it takes to be like a, a complete and a good musician in our, in our world. Uh, it's one thing to, uh, you know, when you're young, you go to the conservatory or you go to what, whatever music school you go. And, you know, basically you go in a room and you go and practice like... Uh, I don't know, anywhere from four to eight hours, probably better eight. But <laughs> you, you go and you practice there, and basically you're then, then you're ready, and then you go out in the world, and you're supposed to be sharing the, the message of, you know, of love, uh, of music, the power of healing, and all that. But sometimes you haven't been ready for that. The, what you know is to, how to play your notes. And for the young professionals, then they... They just sometimes don't know what to do with all this wonderful talent and training that they have. So this is very important for them. This is the, the moment. This is the key to open the door to their career. And not only to win a job uh, somewhere, but to keep it. Because to, to, to do very well one day, it's like, you know, when you go on a date and you, you it's, uh, it's all very well. And people say, oh, well, okay, let's see each other again. Once you start knowing each other, you have to you have to be able to have, you know, all these qualities that, that makes it last. So that's very important. Now, the other part of it, because that's for all the young professionals, that's kind of, you know, our business there. But the other part is to bring this music to as many people as possible and so, so that people can say that, you know, if you think of a, a music festival, yes, it can have classical, it can have rock, it can have all of that, but it's not just, you know, classic, classical festival that only plays classic. Then if you want to hear uh, some jazz or rock, you have to go to another festival. And the musical, like, you know, the, the, some, so, some music is acceptable here and not acceptable there. No, all the music goes together. 
And that's, that, that's kind of a mandate also and the mission. The 35th season of the Brant Music Festival begins June 30th, and we are speaking with the new interim conductor and artistic director of the festival, Alain Trudel, who's taking over from the great Boris Brant. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You first met Boris more than 40 years ago. What was that meeting like? Well, uh, about 40 years ago, I mean, uh, I, I was a teenager then, and I, I played the concerto with the, his, his father's orchestra. So I knew the family very well. I, I met his father and his mother before. And uh, so that's some time ago. And as a teenager, I, as a teenager, I used to be the principal. I'm a trombone player. I used to be the principal trombone of the McGill Chamber Orchestra uh, when I was uh, 17, 18. And, and then we, we met as, you know, sometimes he would come and conduct the orchestra because he was conducting all over the world. But sometimes he'd come home to Montreal and, and uh, or Hamilton, and, and he would he would come and conduct the orchestra there. So I met him there. I I was uh, stunned by his talent. I said, Oh my God! Okay, this guy really has it. And uh, we got to know each other. You know, everybody has talked to him. Everybody knows Boris. I mean, he's a very easy person to uh, to talk to. Very easy person to get along with. So it was it was not difficult. But for us, it was interesting because his his father was like kind of the the, the king of the place because it was his orchestra and all that. And Boris was doing his career somewhere else. I mean, I understand that very much because I've done a lot of my career outside of, of Montreal as well. So it's uh, now it was, a, it was nice, and we kept we kept in contact all the time. We talked, you know, uh, about you know, uh, oh the new uh, new and up and coming musicians and singers. A lot about singers, you know. Have you heard the singer? Oh, do you know a good baritone? Do you know a good tenor? <laughs> well, actually, that, that's the question. Do you know a good tenor? Because that 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 stuff. But uh, so we kept you know talking, and it's really rare that conductors can be f- colleagues and friends because where it's very competitive and uh, you know we always want to we always have our guard up you know just to make sure that the other person that doesn't think that they're better than us it's very competitive but with boris it was never like that and of course he's uh, he was uh, 20 years older than me so he has much more uh, experience and uh, a bigger career uh, when 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 we're younger and uh, and it was interesting to ask for guidance sometimes and uh, he was never shy to ask us some ideas also to me, which always shocked me because I went like, well, yeah, but, you know, you're so much more in advance than me and all of this. And no, he was always very uh, humble that way. That speaks to uh, the, his character and the quality of the individual. There's no doubt about that. Alain, thank you very much for the time. You're going to do a great job with the Brat Music Festival. Looking forward to what you have in store for all our listeners who will be attending that festival. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Rick, and I hope to see you soon. Alain Trudel is the interim conductor and artistic director with the Brat Music Festival. And again, the 35th season of the festival begins on June 30th, and it'll begin with a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about food prices once again because, well, they're still sky high. They continue to rise in this country, and many families are now augmenting their grocery shopping habits. But what are they doing? How are they beating these rising prices at the grocery store? Stuart Smith is an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan and joins us now to chat about this on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Stuart, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. This year's Canada Food Price Report predicted a 5 to 7% price increase for food this year. We're seeing that. Lo and behold, here we are. How did we get here? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it, it goes back, I think, you know, 
probably about a year ago when we saw continuing waves of COVID affecting uh, food processing facilities that, that were either shut down uh, fully for, for periods of time or reduced workforce. So there's just simply, in a lot of cases, less product um, being produced on a, on a weekly or monthly basis. We, we saw some, some transportation challenges in, in mainland BC when the railroads were wiped out uh, highways last summer. So, so that transportation challenges have slowed things down a little bit. We've also seen the, the rise in the cost of fuel and, and commodities due to, to the drought, certainly in the prairies a little bit, but also the, the uncertainty from, from Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So you put numerous factors together and, and throw in a bit of inflation that's pushing things up as well. And, and we're sitting in this perfect situation now where food prices you know, almost seem to be going up week over week. You mentioned the war in Ukraine. Has that become a real pressure point as well? It's put a lot of pressure on commodity prices. And and in terms of actual food availability, we've not seen any impacts from that. But it's, it's the uncertainty generated about what food production is going to be into the fall that, that's creating a, a lot of the price increases at the moment. Stuart Smith is our guest. He's an associate professor in the Departments of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Saskatchewan. We're chatting about rising food prices in our grocery stores, and it's affecting everyone because a recent survey shows that 81% of lower-income earners say they're impacted by higher food prices, 50% of middle-income earners, and 35% of high-income earners saying they are being hit hard by these escalating prices. How are shoppers adjusting? Are we... Are we buying less? Are we choosing low-cost options? Are we going to those no-name brands? What are we doing? I think it's it's a mix of that, Rick. Yeah, that that in a lot of cases, um, households instead of maybe buying fresh vegetables, are are buying some frozen vegetables to to put into the mix. Uh, certainly, yes, going with away from some of the branded products, um, especially niche market products like that are things that are branded organic or you know, non-GMO, all of those carry significant price premiums. So so consumers that um, are, are facing some difficult choices, I, I think, would be moving away from, from buying those higher priced products when, when just as safe and nutritious a product is available at a lower price. Stuart, I want you to gaze into your cloudy crystal ball <laughs> and answer this question because it's on everyone's mind. How much higher are these prices going to go? I try to be an optimist on this one, Rick. That you know, I, th- I think we're 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 over the hump. That we're seeing that you know a few lingering effects from COVID. That that for the most part, our, our workforces are getting back in place. I expect production to be ramping up and, and back to near normal over the next couple of months, or certainly by the end of summer. So so I'm I'm pretty optimistic that as some of the fresh vegetables from uh, Southern Ontario and, and BC and other parts of Canada start uh, rolling out in the in the next few weeks, a uh, couple of months, that that we will see some easing of, of prices, certainly in, in important areas like um, vegetables, um, meat, possibly as, as our processing plants get, get ramped back up again. Uh, it would be great to, to have some uh, slightly lower priced meat for the barbecues this summer. Definitely. We'll end it on a good note. Stuart, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day.
Thank you very much. My pleasure. That is Stuart Smith, Associate Professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Canadian Academy of Health Sciences has brought forth a new report on autism that confirms ongoing collaboration between all levels of government, autistic people and their families, is needed to ensure sustainable and efficient health and social care systems for those with the neurodevelopmental condition. Here to talk about the Autism in Canada, Considerations for Future Public Policy Development Report, is Dr. Lonnie Zweigenbaum. He is the chair panel, or the panel chair, with the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Dr. Zweigenbaum, how are you today? Very good, thank you, and thanks so much for inviting me to the show. Autism is such a massive and complex condition. What was the aim of the report? I mean, really, the aim of the report was to uh, to tap into issues that are faced by autistic people and their families. Um, the main themes of the report were uh, supports and services, as well as um, social and economic con- inclusion across the lifespan. And really, all of these issues share a common focus on promoting opportunities for autistic people and their families to thrive within their communities across Canada. So there's, there's a lot that's covered, um, and it does share a, a common focus on really removing barriers and creating opportunities for autistic people and their families. You touched on some of those themes. There's a number of them in this report from uh, economic and social inclusion uh, to diversity. When it comes to improving the lives of people with autism, where do we even start? You know, it's a a great question. I I think for... I think for if I think about um, my colleagues and, uh, and and people interacting with autistic folk and their families, probably the way, the place to start is recognizing that uh, that that people with autism have a diversity of needs. It, it is ultimately about diversity, um, um, and and autistic people um, kind of have have needs similar to other Canadians. Um, they need to be respected. They need to have opportunities to pursue their goals. It's important that they receive supports and services and accommodations in order in order to thrive um, and 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 really uh, achieve the things that they that they like in their lives. Um, and um, the approaches vary kind of at different stages of life, um, but I think it really shares that common focus that if we can think about autistic people as being our colleagues, um, uh, our community members, it really is about it, ensuring that they have the opportunities to to to, to thrive and pursue their goals like any other Canadian. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Lonnie Zweigenbaum. He is the panel chair of a new report out from the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Um, The part of the report that really struck a chord with me was related to data collection and research. We know that a lot of research is being done, but the report says more research is needed on the day-to-day needs and priorities of autistic individuals and their families. Why is that? You know, I think traditionally we've tended to focus on autism through a biomedical lens. Like, what are the biological causes? You know, sort of how do we address some of these underlying mechanisms? And, you know, as we enter an era of personalized medicine, there's, in fact, we're learning a lot about um, how biology may help inform sort of a more individualized approach to support. But the reality is that the issues that, that autistic people face in their daily lives are, are, um, are, require sort of a much broader lens um, and, and really thinking about what 
supports and accommodations can, can help them thrive, really thinking about the social and economic barriers that they face in society, as do their families, and, and really thinking about it through a lens of how to, how to help people achieve their goals, achieve a quality of life, um, and, 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 and the nuances that are, that are relevant at different stages of life. So I think part of this is in, in the importance of better representation um, in the research community by people with lived experience. Autistic folks themselves, who are, um, who as researchers are really contributing to the way that we think about the priorities and how we approach our research. So it's it's not an either or. Um, you know, there are there are many research issues that need to be addressed, but but the truth is that there's there's not been enough attention to the the issues that autistic people face that do impact on their quality of life, um, the mental health struggles that they experience, uh, difficulties accessing diagnosis supports and services, and we really need to address these systems issues and, and not just sort of be thinking about individual biology. We've got about a minute. How confident are you that this report can lead to some change or some improvement down the road? You know, I'm confident. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really humbled by having had the opportunity to participate in this process. Um, this, this report was very much guided by a team that included people with professional and scientific backgrounds and those with expertise that comes from lived experience, including autistic people and family members of autistic people. It's very much um, informed by a rigorous and extensive review of, of research policy and best practice grounded by perspectives of people with lived experience. And I think it does provide a comprehensive set of key findings that uh, that can guide, you know, policy at, at the highest levels, but also inform um, practice and perspectives around autism. Because it's not only about um, it's not only about the uh, the provincial and federal policies, but rather about how all of us think about autism. All of us think about um, the stigma and prejudice that autistic people and their families can face, and how do we remove uh, barriers to to really allow autistic people to, 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 to thrive uh, uh, throughout the lifespans and across the diversity of contexts um, that, uh, that people grow up in across Canada. Dr. Zweigenbach, great job on this uh, report, Autism in Canada. Let's hope it does lead to some positive change going forward. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much as well, and, and all the best. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This headline certainly caught my eye. First of its kind, black-led Canadian research project that aims to build a success pipeline for black youth by showing them they belong at university. So I thought, okay, what's this all about? Here to tell us what it's all about is Juliet Daniel, Professor and Associate Dean of Research and International Relations at McMaster University. Professor Daniel, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine, thank you, and thanks for having me on your show. Bring us into this research project. What did you aim to find? Um, so the project, as you know, was actually funded through York University and Dr. Professor Carl James, who's the Jean Augustine Chair of Education, Community, and Diaspora at York University. And I've been collaborating with um, Carl for over three, four years, basically trying to understand and address the dearth of black students in post-secondary education and the dearth of them proceeding on to successful professional careers. And so when he got funded with this project, he immediately reached out and asked me to be involved um, and to have an initiative at McMaster along with four other professors that he invited to also participate this year. All right, so what did you find? So, yeah, so so I haven't found anything yet, <laughs> but just anecdotally from what I've been doing, so I've been a professor at McMaster for 22 years, and um, 
For the past 22 years, I've been the only black female scientist at the university. And my very first year as a professor teaching, three students came to the front of the class all excited because they had never, ever had a black teacher in their entire life, which shocked me because Toronto is supposed to be this multicultural city, right? And I couldn't understand how students from the GTA could never have had a black high school teacher. And, you know, so that's when it hit me that there was a real challenge. And then obviously I started paying attention every year when I was teaching and noticing that, yes, there were all the students commented on the fact that they had not had a black teacher before. So that was really enlightening to me. And, you know, as I said, I met Carl and then I met the other professors that are involved in the initiative, Dr. Hewitt at Dalhousie, Dr. Adams at University of Calgary and Dr. Henry at UBC. And we all started to share stories anecdotally of what we see happening at our individual universities where our black students are just craving to see representation in the senior leadership at our individual universities, as well as just craving to see black professors teaching and mentoring them. So they're, they're, they're the ones that have made it into the system are really, really looking for that validation and for someone to encourage and support them and mentor them and tell them that, yes, you can do it. You can be a professor. You can be a lawyer. You can be a doctor. Like these things are not impossible. But they, they, many of them are also first generation um, university students. So they themselves don't have any parents or family members that may have gone to university to advise and mentor them. So that's where we're going to try to fill that gap at our different institutions by providing and offering different initiatives to help them with that. That is amazing. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Juliet Daniel, Professor and Associate Dean in Research and International Relations at McMaster University. There's also a Congress coming up. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is an annual Congress um, called the Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences. And it's the largest academic gathering and one of the most comprehensive in the world. And it's taking place virtually again this year, um, beginning May 12th and running until May 20th. And it's basically a conference that has um, focuses on the critical conversations relevant to our times as well as society. And so um, my colleagues that are in humanities and social scientists will be presenting on some of the work that we're doing focused on black youth in academia and higher ed. And there will be other um, researchers and faculty members tackling, I'm sure, for example, indigenous youth and representation, or even big, bigger um, issues such as racism, et cetera. I myself have never attended as a STEM scientist, but I will attend this Congress, especially now that it's virtual. I can actually attend some of the sessions and see what that is about, because I've never attended it. Very neat. More details online at congress2022.ca. You can also use the code TRANSITIONS2022 to receive a discount on registration, and uh, that will certainly help, obviously. So will this immersive summer camp that is going to be held not only at McMaster, but Dalhousie University as well. What's going to happen at this camp? So the goal of this camp, so at Dalhousie, um, Dr. Professor Kevin Hewitt um, initiated and launched an initiative almost 20 years ago called Imatep Learning Academy, specifically focusing on increasing the numbers of black youth pursuing STEM disciplines and ultimately STEM careers, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so um, I have always wanted to launch a pilot of Imatep at McMaster and, and in the Horseshoe region, but we never had the funding or the time. But now with the funding from York University and RBC securing black futures, 
we're going to um, launch Imhotep here in Hamilton. So the Imhotep activities and program will be targeting black high school students here in Hamilton, as well as in the Halton district. And then the summer immersive part, ideally, um, we'll be planning for university level students. But this year, what we're going to do for the pilot is we're going to have four or five high school students from the Hamilton area work with me and my assistant, Peyton Shank, to develop the Imhotep activities for the high school students. And what we're going to offer the four to six high school students working with us is the opportunity to live in residence for three to four days this summer to get that experience of living on campus, interacting with others on campus, and basically visualizing and envisioning themselves as university students in the future at the university or a university, it doesn't have to be a master. And so that's what we're, we're working on right now. And we are really excited about it because we can imagine how that will change the lives of those four to six students that will be working with us this summer, developing the outreach program for the high school students, but also then experiencing for themselves what it's like to be physically on campus on a regular basis, living in a dormitory, and having that full experience of being a university student before they even get here. So, well, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of great things are happening, and uh, it's great to see that it's happening here in Hamilton and at McMaster as well. Professor Daniel, thank you for your time today, and thanks for being a beacon for so many students in this community. Thank you so much for inviting me, and have a wonderful rest of your day. That is Julia Daniel, Professor, Associate Dean, Research and International Relations at McMaster University. Wish you had a few more minutes to talk about uh, some of the other uh, different things that they have looked into, but maybe we'll do that for another day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's many great local organizations in Hamilton. I mean, there's a long list of really volunteer-based initiatives and events and committees that do some great stuff in our city. And, and this one is no exception. The Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton. It first met in 1912. Yeah, this is a 110-year-old organization, which is now calling for nominations for the Woman of Spirit Award to highlight the many achievements of women in this city. We're joined by two guests on the show, Louise Noel Ambrose, the president of the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton, and Susan Ricketts, who's the Women of Spirit Award coordinator and past president of the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton. Louise, Susan, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Morning. We'll start with uh, Louise. What is the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton all about? The Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton is all about to foster throughout the greater Hamilton area an interest in all matters of public concern in regards to strengthening our Canadian unity and identity, and also to promote education and promotion of Canadian heritage and history, and also an appreciation and awareness of our Canadian culture and traditions to new Canadians coming into Canada. And Susan, there is an illustrious history of amazing women in this in this city. Yes, there certainly is. And uh, we try to highlight them um, throughout our meetings and so on. And we're very proud of that. Susan, tell us about the Woman in Spirit Award. What does it embody? Well, it's to highlight and to celebrate as well uh, the many accomplishments and achievements of women from the, the greater Hamilton area and um, and t to help them um, 
it exemplifies the spirit of Irene McDonald this year. And uh, so what we do is um, we have an award, which is going to be on October 19th, which is Women of History Month, of course. And the recipient of the award will be a woman from uh, Greater Hamilton who has made a significant contribution to this community, who demonstrates compassion and service and serves as a role model and, t and continues to strive to make the world a better place. Louise, there sounds like there's going to be a lot of women to choose from in this community. How do you make that decision? Well, that is done by our panel, our board, is, uh, board members of 10, um, Committee of Women here, part of the group. And Louise, how do people nominate someone for this board? The great thing about it, they can visit our new updated website and get the download the application, which is at www.wccofhamilton.ca. They will go through the community. They know someone that does inspire uh, to be, uh, who provide exemplary uh, service and extraordinary women doing amazing work. We have many within our diverse community and nominate them. We have two guests on the show here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we talk about the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton and they're calling for nominations for the Woman of Spirit Awards. Louise Noel Ambrose is the president of the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton. We're also joined by Susan Ricketts, the Woman of Spirit Awards coordinator and the past presidents of the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton. Susan, when does the nominations close and how many do you expect to receive? Uh, the, the nominations close at the end of June, and um, they are announced um, after after that in September. Uh, we expect to receive um, well. I this year, you know, with a, with a lapse of two years, it's a little hard to tell, but we're we're hopefully we, um, we'll receive um, uh, at least a dozen. I'm sure that we will. Um, the um, no, they have to be nominated um, by a group or a person. In other words, you can't nominate yourself. Um, and uh, stunned through our website. If you go to the website, you'll see the, all the information at that, at that place. Louise, are there certain requirements? Does the woman have to be born in Hamilton? Do they have to make a major impact in the city? What are some of the criteria that they have to follow? They have to be off Hamilton and doing amazing work and there is a full description um what is required but as long as in my opinion they have been doing exemplary work within our community and having a positive impact and they'll make the grade and we have no shortage of that in this city that is for sure uh one That's last yeah one last question for you louise um it, do you need volunteers for the women's canadian club of hamilton and if so what, what do you need them for we always do need volunteers. We are open for many uh, events that we do when we did do it. And one of them was going, um, Susan will tell you more, because I do believe she was part of the club, the members that went into the citizenship uh, club, going to welcome our visitors on the day that they receive their citizenship. Oh, wow, that is cool. Susan, what's that process like? Uh, well, when we do go and, and assist with, with that, um, we go down to the, the center where the Im immigrants will be um, uh, 
will be and we we offer a welcome to them and we and a little reception afterwards uh to greet them and, and speak with them it's it's really a wonderful um experience for us this is great nominations close on june 30th for the woman in spirit award louise and susan thanks for joining us this morning and talking to us about the women's canadian club of hamilton and this uh, prestigious award thanks for the time and enjoy the day Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Louise and Susan. And uh, I should mention this, that uh, the Women's Canadian Club of Hamilton hosted their first public meeting 110 years ago on May the 3rd, yeah, 1912. And their first project, this is cool, was a recital held to benefit Titanic victims. Yeah, because the ship had just sunk like, a couple months ago. Uh, the substantial sum of $54 was raised. I'm sure that did go back in that time. A long way. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.